You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Suicide is the third leading cause of death in 15 to 24-year-olds, according to the Centers for Disease Control. But the highest rates of suicide are found among the elderly. Risk increases with age. White males over age 85 have a suicide rate six times that of the overall national rate. Notably, over 70% of older suicide victims visited their primary care physician within the month of their death, but symptoms were neither reported nor detected. The challenge of recognizing the warning signs of suicide in individuals of any age is the topic of this clinician's roundtable. Welcome, I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Boston is my guest, Dr. Matthew Nock, Director of the Laboratory of Clinical and Developmental Research in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Welcome, Dr. Nock. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Nock, let's talk a little bit about the epidemiology of suicide. Sure. So in the U.S., what large nationally representative surveys have found is that about 13% of people report having thoughts of suicide at some point in their lifetime. About 4 to 5% have actually made a plan and actually made an attempt as well. And can you compare U.S. suicide rates with those worldwide? Where does the U.S. fall compared to other countries? In terms of suicide deaths or complete suicide, U.S. falls around the middle range of other countries. We actually have a paper that hopefully will be coming out soon looking at rates of suicide ideation plans and attempts, so non-lethal suicidal thoughts and behaviors. We're comparing these across 17 different countries around the world, and we're seeing a fairly broad range of prevalence rates across countries but some similarities in risk factors and protective factors for these outcomes. Which countries show the higher rates as compared to uh, the U.S.? Overall, what we find is that some countries in Eastern Europe will have highest rates of suicide deaths. The U.S. and Canada, North America, so to speak, and parts of Europe, uh, Western parts of Europe, have more moderate rates, and South America will have the lowest rates. And lots of countries don't have rates of suicide deaths, don't have data on this, such as many countries in Africa. So the picture is somewhat incomplete, but we do see large regional differences. Are you able to identify factors that might explain that? We haven't. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle missing in terms of suicide to date, unfortunately. So we're seeing these large differences, and we're seeing differences not only in suicide death, but in ideation plans and attempts cross-nationally. And we're just trying now to get a hold on what are consistent risk factors cross-nationally, and then where do we see differences? so we can get more specific country by country at improving our ability to detect and predict these outcomes. In the United States, when you look at men and women and compare them in terms of suicide rates, what do you see? What we see is that men die by suicide significantly more than women do. But again, the picture becomes complex when we think about what outcome we're looking at. So men are significantly more likely to die by suicide. In contrast, women are significantly more likely to have thoughts of suicide and to make suicide attempts. Let's talk about the men for a minute here. More than half of all suicides in the United States are committed with a gun. Does this play a role in the higher rate of suicide in men? It does. So men in general tend to use more lethal means in their suicide attempts, more aggressive, more lethal in nature, uh, which many believe is the reason that men are, quote unquote, more successful at dying by suicide than women. Firearm use is also uh, very common among female suicide attempters, but women are significantly more likely than men to use less lethal means such as cutting or uh, taking drug overdoses. Are there certain professions in the U.S. that show a higher rate of suicide? Not that I'm aware of good data on. People have talked about some professions having higher rates of suicide death than others. What we're likely to see, given that the majority of suicides in our country are completed by 
white men, I think you know, one could look at occupations predominantly populated by white men and find higher rates. But when one controls for demographic factors such as um, age, sex, ethnicity, a lot of these risks drop away. A good instance is a study that we published several years ago led by Peter Marzik at Cornell University on police suicide. So the thinking was policemen have a much higher suicide rate than other folks. This was about 12 years ago in New York City uh, when there was a rash of police suicides. What we did was look at medical records for suicide deaths in the five boroughs of New York from 1977 to 1997, about a 20-year period, and we did find more suicides among police officers in general than in the population in terms of rates, but when one adjusts for the fact that most police officers in New York, or a large percentage, are white men between the ages of 18 and 65, that group is at, at really high risk for suicide death. So when you adjust for that, the rate is not higher than in the population. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Matthew Nock, Director of the Laboratory of Clinical and Developmental Research in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. And we are talking about suicide and the statistics around suicide. So, Dr. Nock, you just mentioned that if you adjust for the fact that police officers in New York are white males of a certain age, that it doesn't really make a difference what their profession is. It's also, I've read, physicians and dentists have a high suicide rate. Do you think that's the same thing? It may very well be the same thing. I don't, I don't know the studies to which you're referring well enough offhand, but yes, important in identifying high risk associated with occupation to adjust for what the age, sex, and ethnicity of people populating that population is. There was a recent article, the June 9th article in the New York Times, that stated that American Indian and Alaskan Native youth, 15 to 24-year-olds, are committing suicide at a rate more than three times the national average, with the worst rate in the American Indian population in the Great Plains, where suicide rate is 10 times the national average. How does this example illustrate the social, cultural, economic, and other complex factors that can impact suicide rate. It's a great example of how complex this issue can be and why we're currently, the best way to put it, is not great at predicting who's, who's most likely to make a suicide attempt or who's most likely to die by suicide. I think there are just a lot of social, cultural, biological factors that are, that are going to play a role. And we're looking at, with suicide, with suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviors, something of a moving target, and that these are transient thoughts and behaviors, which makes it even more difficult. So People who are depressed, for example, tend to be depressed for weeks or months at a time, and then it goes away, and then it often returns. It's cyclical in nature. Suicidal thoughts are much more rapid. They come and they go much more quickly. So it's hard to predict who's going to have them. Only a small portion, about a third of people who have suicidal thoughts, transition to making a plan, and somewhere from a third to to three-quarters of those who have suicidal plans will make a suicide attempt. So we're looking at an increasingly small group, which has really heterogeneous risk factors. Right. Let's talk about the the risk assessment of those factors. You published an article in June of 2006 called Warning Signs for Suicide, Theory, Research, and Clinical Applications. One of the goals of the study was to differentiate warning signs and risk factors. In the article, you point out that despite the large amount of research on risk factor identification, relatively little has been written about differentiating warning signs from risk factors in the literature. What's the difference between warning signs and risk factors for suicide, and why are they each important? Great question. This is a paper that was led by David Rudd. The authors were members of a group who came together for a meeting on warning signs. And the motivation for this was 
I'm sure you and, and your listeners are familiar with, a lot of warning sign cards and materials that are circulated in schools, in doctor's offices, on the Internet. Folks got together, suicide researchers, and wondered, what is the evidence for these warning signs? So we spent several days going through the literature, trying to define risk factors and warning signs and trying to evaluate the evidence for these. And we think of risk factors as more distal or longer-term factors that increase the likelihood of subsequent suicide attempts or death. Warning signs, in contrast, are those signs that are more proximal, more immediate, that signal imminent risk of suicide. So risk, common risk factors are age, male sex, as we talked about, the presence of a psychiatric disorder, the presence of comorbid psychiatric disorders significantly increase risks, and there are other demographic and psychiatric risk factors that have been identified. Warning signs, in contrast, are things like making threats to harm oneself, seeking access to a way to kill oneself, such as guns or pills, or talking or writing about death, dying, or suicide. So these are the signs that signal to those around a person that they're at imminent risk for dying by suicide. Mm -hmm. And you argue that long-term risk factors are not sufficient to assess suicide risk and that the current state of the individual must be taken into account in assessing risk of suicide. The current state of the individual can best be defined by near-term signs. These warning signs or predictors of near-term risk would demand specific and immediate intervention. That's right. So the longer-term risk factors, taking psychiatric disorders as an example, psychiatric disorders certainly increase the risk of suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviors and should increase one's concern about the likelihood of, of suicide by definition. But these are sensitive but not very specific risk factors meaning a lot of people with psychiatric disorders, most people with psychiatric disorders, will never make a suicide attempt. So they can identify the larger pool, but not the smaller pool of people who are, who are at greatest risk. And for that, we need warning signs or something in between the two, uh, more specific risk factors to best detect and prevent suicide attempts and death. What are some of the relevant clinical and research applications for the consensus set of warning signs identified by the American Association of Suicidology? Yes. The AAS is the group that put together this great workshop. I think scientifically it focuses the research microscope, so to speak, a little bit more finely on what factors are important to take a look at beyond our general risk factors. Clinically, it gives clinicians and all mental health professionals something evidence-based on which to focus. So there, our concern was that there are a lot of risk factors out there that have no support, things like having a disheveled appearance, getting better after a depression as a risk factor for suicide is a common thing that's talked about even in training programs. If a person's depressed and feeling better, that's when they're at greatest risk. Myself nor anyone in the, in the meeting could identify any research evidence for this finding. So I think there are these erroneous or, or unsupported warning signs out there, and identifying what the evidence supports will help us focus our efforts scientifically and clinically, I think. Right. I do remember being taught that, that once the person could think <laughs> more clearly, then they could carry out a plan to uh, commit suicide. It makes good sense, and it, and it may be, but there's just no evidence for that. Or, you know, a person's depressed. As they come out of the depression, they now have the energy to act on their plans. It's a, it's a good common sense explanation, but there's just no evidence for it that, that any of us are aware of. Right. And it's so important that clinicians be aware of what there really is evidence for so that they can move forward with things that you know make sense. Right. Focus the resources where we have evidence they should be focused. Dr. Nog, can you tell us about your current research in trying to develop an assessment tool for suicide risk? We're currently not great at predicting who's at, at highest risk for suicide. And most of our current methods rely on a person's self-report of whether they are thinking about suicide or likely to make a suicide attempt. And as I think any clinician would know, this is limited in many important ways. So what we've been working on is developing a performance-based test of suicidal thoughts. 
An example of this is in our current article in the American Journal of Psychiatry, which looks at an implicit association test for self-injurious thoughts. We've expanded this work for suicidal thoughts now, and what we're doing is trying to understand through a brief five-minute computer-based reaction time test if a person is thinking about suicide and how they're thinking about it. And we're trying to use this test to detect and predict suicide attempts in the hospital and following discharge from the hospital. Well, that sounds very important, especially given that a lot of people who end up committing suicide do see their clinician, but the uh, suicide is never brought up. Right. And one of the highest risk times is immediately after discharge from the hospital. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Matthew Nock, Director of the Laboratory of Clinical and Developmental Research in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Nock. Thank you so much for having me. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.